0: All right, well, I'm excited to start Philippians chapter two. Um, Before we read that, let's read, um, I'm gonna read the last couple verses of chapter one as well. Um, I think it is really, really important to remember exactly where we're coming from. But I'm gonna, I have this short little story about a real group of people that applies um, to this to this passage. So as you're turning to Philippians, just listen and imagine this. Early one morning, a man wakes up on a mountainside and he thanks God that he even woke at all, knowing he lightly, likely would not have woken up if the shivering from the extreme cold hadn't done it. You see, the night before, he and a couple others had been drugged out from a small house that they were worshiping in, and the leaders of their community had showed up right outside of their house to watch them be beaten, uh, to be stripped, and then led up the side of a mountainside and left there to survive the night, or not survive. So this man, he looks around to find that the others are beginning to wake up too, and together they make their way down, down the mountain before dawn, hoping to arrive in their homes and to clothe themselves before the rest of the community sees them. And on on their way, they see that the home they met in to pray that very night before had been completely ripped apart brick by brick. You see this small group of Christians, well, this small group of Christians begin to share whatever clothing they can spare with each other. They say a prayer, offering encouragement to each other and return to the fields owned by the very people who had beaten them the night before were ready for a day's work. They knew that their persecution wasn't over, uh, but they were confident in their savior and and they were confident in the, the encouragement that their little church could give each other. And you see, they were united together in faith, They were marked by humility by even just returning to work and they were selfless in sharing the gospel that next day with everyone else in the community. This is a real group of people. This is a real group of Christians and they were suffering and their suffering didn't stop there. They would keep going to be mocked by their friends, by their family, by their neighbors. They would be disowned by their families and their neighbors, by their community. And it's to these people that Paul writes these words. And so starting in verse uh, 27 of Philippians 1, it says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you were standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. And so tonight's passage, the SV says, says it like this. It says, so if... Those are two little words of the law of significance. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same heart, being in one accord. And having the same mind, and do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see, this group that I started out with, these people had three markings about them, three things that made them able to endure the persecution that they had. And there's three things that will enable you to endure any persecution or hardship that you might have. You see, our persecution might not be the same as being beaten and stripped and drug up the side of a mountain to possibly freeze to death. In fact, we might not be persecuted that way, but there are other ways that we struggle. There are other ways that we're hurting. Maybe some of you have had the experience before where you, you just can't get out of bed. In fact, it's been so long that you have even remembered feeling any type of joy at all, but you just can't get up. And so you don't. Maybe you've had a really long week. You've been at work, working at a job you don't particularly love for a boss who isn't exactly your favorite. And it seems that, you, what's the point of my job? Why, what, what am I doing this for? What encouragement do I have in this? Or maybe... Maybe you're a student and you go to school and there's this group of really mean people who just won't stop bothering you. It doesn't seem like what you do. You may dress a different way to try to appease them, they still bother you. You may try to talk like them, they still bother you. You see, Paul here in Philippians is teaching us, he's not teaching us how to get rid of any of this persecution, to get rid of any suffering we might have for whatever reason it is, but he's teaching us to endure it and teaching us how We will make it from in this world until we get to heaven. And so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation from love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, you see, this so if is is, is so important as I kind of hinted at and said a second ago. I'm going to come back to the if at the end because the if is, is too big to tie in with the so, but, but the so implies that, that, that we are living in a world that we've outlined over the last couple of weeks through chapter one, a, a world of persecution, a world of suffering, a world where ultimately we, we're reminded from Paul that to live is Christ and to die is game. And, and, and so... And so what do we do? That's the question here. What are we supposed to do? One, church, I will tell you, the first thing that we need to do if we're gonna endure and make it to the end in a world like this is be united. He writes to us, make my joy complete, in verse two, by thinking the same way, having the same love, and being united in the spirit, intent on one purpose. I asked Josh, or I asked, Uh, Jerry, the church, that we would have um, Ephesians chapter four um, read as our call to worship. I'm gonna read this part again because church, we need to be united and Ephesians four tells us what that's like. Ephesians four, verses one through six say, therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all. So church, the first step to making it through a world like this is to be united together, remembering, remember your calling, what are we united in? We're united with each other, but what are we united in? We were united in Christ. That passage in Ephesians says, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, it's uh, uh, Paul again in Ephesians is trying to tell us that we are united together to look at Christ. How many times has Josh told us in the past, like, don't, don't get caught up in this, don't get caught up in this, but focus on Christ. Look at him and don't turn away. We see that, image all throughout the Bible. Well, we see that when when Peter jumps out of the boat and looks to Christ, and as long as he's looking straight ahead, he doesn't sink. Just look to Christ. We are united. Again, in Ephesians, here in the same passage, he goes down a little bit. In verse 11, it says, "...and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ." So he's given us all these various people to do different roles for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, for the purpose of being united. And verse 13 says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So we, all these people that he talks about that he's given us, some pastors, evangelists, teachers, teachers. Their point is to teach us, to help us understand what God is like. The church, we are to help each other understand what God is like. So that way we might be united and focused on him. And so that way we will have the fullness of the knowledge of God. And he keeps going. So he, he tells us this all the time. Um, again, in First Corinthians chapter 1, I'll read this to you. 1 verse 10 says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. You know, so church, my, my first question to us then, before we move on, is, is are we united? Do we look at each other and say, yeah, we're on the same goal, we got the same path, we're going the same direction? And I would argue here at Fairdale that we, that we are in fact, I think we have an excellent, an excellent mission statement that kind of sets the traje- trajectory of where we're going. It says, we exist to proclaim Jesus while loving and serving both God and people. I think we talk about this probably every Sunday. Josh mentions it, Jake mentions it, everyone mentions it. We hear it all the time because it's a great trajectory of where we want to go. It's a great goal. And it's a great way to keep us united on what is important, united and focused on Jesus that we would love God and people and serve them. And so the first thing that we need to do to endure a world that is hard, full of suffering, full of persecution for Christians is to be united. Now, the next two points are kind of like they're almost just the application of what happens when a church unites itself because well the next one's the next point's going to be we need to be humble. So first we have to be united. And the next, we have to be humble. And I want us to see how humility is kind of the whole, the whole core, the baseline for even a, to begin to be united. It says, in verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourself. How on earth can we expect as often arrogant and unloving and Selfish people, how can we expect to unite with any other person? Not just, not only just one, but like a whole congregation of people and be united if we're not humble. If we can't say, oh man, Tyson, and I, look at me, I've got this huge log in my eye. If I can't take that out before, I can look at a friend and just say, hey man, uh, I think we need to change this. But, but more on this passage, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. So I took a moment to think about what ambition means, and um, after a couple of times of having a bad definition, this is what Google says it means. It says, ambition is a strong desire to do or achieve something, and typically it requires determination or hard work. Paul chose his words carefully there, selfish ambition. That means something that we have to work hard for, something that we're requires work, and we desired it so badly, we put in time, effort, and energy to get it for ourselves. Don't do anything like that. But I would tell you, and what I I think that is, is fair to say is, well, let's do the opposite of that. Let's have selfless ambition. If we're gonna be a humble church, let's have selfless ambition for our church members. And so what would that look like? That would be having a strong desire to do or achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work on the behalf of somebody else. Now, I want to pause here. I I, want to say that um, Paul is a really, really good writer, at least when empowered by the Holy Spirit. I don't know what his diary looks like, but here, he's a great writer. He's already shown us this. He's already shown us a prime example of selfless ambition. Philippians 1, 21 and following. For me, it's to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. You see, Paul's already demonstrated this to us. Paul has already not, he's not just telling us, hey, be selfless. He's not saying don't do anything selfishly, but he's already demonstrated what selfless ambition looks like. He thought to himself, he's like, no, I, it's better that I stay here and work hard for this congregation, for this people. So church, what I urge you to do, and, and what I'm, the, the word urges you to do and what I urge myself to do here is to work Hard with selfless ambition for your neighbor, for that church member, for that person who you know is particularly struggling in some way, or for that person you don't even know that well, who sits on the other side of the pew. Work hard. Have selfless, selfless ambition for them. But it doesn't stop there. It says, do nothing out of selfless ambition or conceit. And so naturally, conceit is after Googling what ambition meant, I Googled conceit, which is excessive pride in oneself. Don't do anything with excessive pride in yourself. As I was praying through this and reading this, it hurt really, really badly. In fact, I had to stop and I had to walk away from this passage because the Lord just utterly convicted me about the facts of how much pride that I have. Guys, if you would read this passage and pray over this passage, I I hope you don't have the same reaction that I do. I I hope that you don't find as much pride and pain as I did when I first read it. But man, does Paul know his audience. How many of us have excessive pride in ourselves? And so here here is the, the, the other side of the coin that I would propose that we might do. Let's have excessive pride in our neighbor, in our church member, instead of being like showing up and be like, guys, look at this awesome thing that I did. I wrote this beautiful paper. I wrote this beautiful poem. I wrote this beautiful song. I performed here and here and here. Someone hit a line drive to me. I dove, caught it, threw it over the first base, and got the most amazing double play you've ever seen in your life. Rather than doing those things, why don't we have excessive humility? At least pray for it and strive for it and excessive pride in our friends and our neighbors and our church members saying, hey, did you see how well this person took care of this other person in this, th- this struggle? Man, so-and-so was having a hard time, and like these three people in our church got together, and they brought them up, and it was an awesome thing to see. As I began to think about the opposites of all these, uh, uh, all of these verses I I was stunned. Stunned at at the the lack of it in in my own life so many times, you know. But also stunned in in the presence of it in so many other people here in our church. Uh, some of you know my wife, Anna. Anna was, uh, having a very, very hard time last week. We'll just say that. Uh, And Joe, I don't mean to put you on a spot, but Joe, I I let him know what was going on. He looks at me and he sends a text back, a call back, and he lets me know. He's like, hey, let me know if there is anything that we can do to help you. Anything absolutely at all. And this is as I'm beginning to think about this very verse and this very passage. And man, our church is humbled. That's just one example I can name infinitely more in my own life where our church members have come alongside me and said, what can I do? Anything at all. And so... I say that to be used as an example. Be like that. If you find someone who's struggling in any way, lift them up. Anyway, it says, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. You see these these first two things, not not doing anything selfishly and not being conceited comes real easy once you realize that your neighbor next to you is more important than you. I pray that that would be the case, that we would not look at ourselves and say, I'm number one, I'm on top, you know, but rather we would say, oh my gosh, him and her and him and her and him and her. What can I do to serve them? How can I wear myself out? How can I serve them to an extent where I am so tired I can do nothing else? I think that is what what Paul is pointing us to do here. And so that's the first two things. What do you have to do? To endure a time like this, what does the church have to do? To endure hard times and struggle, one, they, they need to be united. Two, they need to be humble. They need to be humble so that way they are serving one another. And my last little point is you need to be selfless. Now, selfless is, I almost thought this is not even a whole point, but as I read it, Paul seems to make it a whole point. I, I thought to myself, well, selflessness is clearly just a... Uh, uh, an application of humility. Once you're humbled, then you're selfless. That's not always true. And so Paul gives us another verse on it. And he writes, Everyone should look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see, we can help people who are suffering. We can help people who are hurting. We can help people who seem to be having a rough go at it. But Paul doesn't even stop there. Paul just says, At a completely neutral zone, at a completely just glance at, the other, at, at your congregation, at your friends, and at your family. Uh, What's best for them? What's best for 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 my neighbor who's sitting here at, at the front pew, and the neighbor who's sitting there at the back pew, and everyone in between. And he tells us, just don't look to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see, it's so important. He needed a second verse. I, I glanced over it the first time, and in fact, as I was reading through Philippians, and I, you, know, you read, okay, do nothing with selfish ambition, no conceit, but have humility, okay, others, and then you move on. No, he stops, and that, this, this is a full stop. And so I really just wanted to, to harp on it a little bit longer. Guys, it was, it was told to me by a, a dear friend, and Josh even repeated it this morning, uh, having learned it growing up, he said, from his parents and through sports. People are important. People are really important. But what I didn't get when I was young and uh, uh, I didn't get what this person was trying to tell me, what he was trying to tell me is that people are more important than you. Guys, are, are, we, don't, we don't matter so much as compared to, to your neighbor. You know what it, So I just wanna leave you with, with this thought from this verse that there is almost nothing that you can do there's almost no amount that you can go for the beha- on the behalf of another person for their betterment, for their encouragement, for their uplifting, for their praise. All of this, of course, in the, with the mindset of honoring God. But there's no point that you can go that is too far for that person that won't be worth it. It will be worth it. And so, so I go back to that original question. What does it take for a church to endure suffering, to endure persecution, to endure the, the days where you feel like you don't want to get out of bed. It takes a church who will, one, be united. It takes a church where its members will be humble enough to take out their own logs, humble enough to say, whatever it takes, to do whatever it takes, to lower themselves to whatever position it might mean, to lift up that other person and to be completely selfless in doing it, not looking to your own interest, not doing something for the sake of, for not lifting someone up, hoping to get a little bit of glory out of it, hoping for someone to say, oh man, man, that guy really did lift him up. You know, no, no, we're doing it for selflessness. And so those three things, unity, humility, and selflessness. I did say at the beginning, though, that we need to come back to the the if. You see, if we are a church like this, our church members who are down and hurting, they will be lifted up and they will be encouraged and they won't be down and hurting for very long. And if they are, well, we have a church who's humble enough, who's persistent and selfless enough, Who's united enough to work together and to coordinate to say, we need to be here for this person and help them. But there's another sense of what this if is like. In fact, that if says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. This if is talking about if you belong to Christ. If you have his encouragement and his love and his comfort, then the love and the comfort, the humility, the united church will come and be there with you. And they can be there with you. Because you know them and you're part of them and they know you well and can minister to you well. But there's another if. And it's if you're not. If you do not know the encouragement of Christ, if you do not know the comfort of his love, if you have no participation of the spirit within you, then you don't know the affection and you don't know the sympathy of of, of the church in the fullest sense. Sure, the church can love a person who is an unbeliever. The church does love people who are unbelievers. In fact, we should. But there's something about a relationship where we show up every single week and we see each other in and out and we know how to minister to each other and when we're down and hurting, we can be there in the right ways. And also, more, even more importantly, if you are not within Christ, you're not just missing out on the people of the church. You're missing out on Christ and the Holy Spirit himself, that whole little section that says participation of the Spirit. The participation of the Spirit is, is working within all of us who are believers, transforming us, renewing us to become more like Christ. It's the evidence of salvation, the evidence of God saying that we are justified and made right in his image. If you don't have that, then, then God's not saying you're justified and right in my image. He's saying you're, you're going to hell. That's what he says. This if is huge, and it's, it's almost unfair how such a massive massive difference in, in in life can hinge on such a little bitty word, on if. And so this is what I'll tell you as I end. If you are not trusting in Christ, if you haven't believed, believe. Know the comfort of his love. Know the encouragement of him. Have the participation of the Holy Spirit within you. And know that you can put your hope in that. A hope that will last through this world, this world of suffering, this world which we're suffering one end once you start to believe, or if you start to believe. But rather, you'll have hope and the encouragement of Christ will get you through to the end. And then there will be a day where you won't need the encouragement of the church you won't need the encouragement to get out of bed anymore because there will be the glorious sun there in our presence guys I, I I can't do this passage justice if I don't tell you though that all of this it's not only just telling us and I can't wait for Robbie to tell us all next week of, of who this is about all of this is about Jesus. We are not, we're gonna be a united church. I want us to be a humble church and I want us to be that way ultimately because that's what Jesus was. He was a humble, humble man. And so guys, I encourage you to read the next couple verses tonight to pray about it and get ready for next week as we hear, hear about the humility of Christ and who he is as a person. So guys, let me pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the church. God, you've given us this amazing body of people who are living life, living a hard life, living often persecuted lives. And God, you've given us each other and you've given us your son so that we might be encouraged and continue to the end. Jesus, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the church. We love you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen.